0: Our scripture reading today comes from Ecclesiastes 12, verses 9 through 14. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son... Beware of anything beyond these, of making many books there is no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man, for God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, Christ Community. My name is Brent, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Leewood campus, and I'm going to start my sermon today by making a confession that may make me unpopular with some of you. Are you ready? Okay, I don't really like movies. And I know that's kind of shocking, and you can take it, yeah, there it is, okay, I knew it. There were audible gasps at the eight o'clock service. So you can let it sink in if you need to, but um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a blanket statement, so let me, let me explain what I mean. So it's not that I don't like any movies. There are lots of movies that I have enjoyed, but, but in general, sitting down to watch a new movie, you know, one that I haven't seen before or one that I don't know anything about is not my first choice for how to spend a free afternoon or evening. <clears throat> Part of it is the risk involved. Like I, don't, I don't want to invest two hours into something I may not end up liking. But I have a friend who loves movies, and what I found from spending time with him is that he also knows how to watch movies. He knows how to pay attention to plot devices and cinematography and the role that music plays in making a movie, not just entertainment, but a work of art. And what I found from watching movies with this friend is that once he helps me understand how to watch the movie, I actually enjoy it more than I expected, He usually will give just enough detail before we turn it on so that I'll know what to look for. And then after the final credits, we'll turn it off and discuss what we just watched. It's often in that post-movie discussion that things come together for me. Did you notice that scene early on that foreshadowed what would happen later? Did you notice how they made that particular camera shot? Or did you notice the arc of the main character, you know, how he started good and then slowly deteriorated into a raging madman by the end of the movie? My answer is usually, I didn't notice any of those things. <clears throat> but then we go, I go back and I, I replay the movie in my mind and see how the pieces fit together, how there's an art and a beauty to it that I hadn't noticed before. And that post-movie conversation helps me, someone who doesn't really like movies, to appreciate uh, what I've just seen. So I need my, my friend, my interpreter, to know what to do with what I just watched, and in some ways, I think that's similar to, to this final section of Ecclesiastes that we just heard read this morning. It's not a perfect analogy, but the book starts with a narrator uh, who, like my, mo- my, like my friend, he, he introduces the movie, The Preacher. And then he, in, pre- in Hebrew, the, the, the word for The Preacher is the word Kohelet, which is how we've been referring to, uh, to this guy throughout the series in the book of Ecclesiastes called Life Up in Smoke. The narrator starts by saying, hey, let me introduce you to the preacher, to Kohelet. I want you to hear what he has to say. And then for the next 11 and a half chapters, the narrator fades into the background. And it's like you're, you're silently watching a movie alongside him. Only in this case, the movie is a series of sad speeches about the meaninglessness of life. <clears throat> There's no other book in the Bible like Ecclesiastes, where you have one voice speaking for the majority of the book, And then another voice that jumps in at the end to tell you what to think about what you just heard. So like my friend who helps me understand the movie we just watched, that's what the the narrator's function is here in this book. And the movie of Ecclesiastes closes with Kohelet's last words in chapter 12, verse 8. So if you're not already there, go ahead and turn there now. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. Ecclesiastes is kind of a small book in the middle of your Bible, so feel free to use your table of contents if you need help finding it. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 8. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. These are Kohelet's last words. Kind of a dark ending, isn't it? And now, like my friend, after the final credits have rolled, now the narrator's about to step back in, into the picture, and to say, let's talk about what you just watched. The narrator is here to help us make sense of Kohelet, to make sense of some of the confusing plot twists and turns, and really to help us know what to do with this book. A good movie can inspire you to do something, you know, to be more, more courageous like the main character, or to think differently about a particular topic, to, to appreciate life and your loved ones, or just to slow down and pay better attention. And Ecclesiastes should inspire, inspire us to action as well. And the narrator is going to help us understand what that action should be. But before we turn to his insight, let's revisit Kohelet's last words one more time in verse 8. Vanity of vanities, all is Vanity. If you'll remember, the the word translated vanity is the Hebrew word hevel, which literally means smoke. It's the key metaphor that's used throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. It's actually used 38 times in this book, more more than it's used in the entire rest of the Old Testament. So life, Kohelet tells us, is like smoke. It looks real and solid, but when you try to grasp it, it slips through your fingers. Smoke is mysterious that way. And this observation leads Kohelet to the brink of despair at times because there seems to be nothing that can be counted on, nothing that can be fully grasped in this life under the sun. Kohelet has told us that pleasure diminishes when we want it to stay. Work is handed over to someone else when we finally reach our peak. Money can never feel like enough to satisfy. Justice always seems out of reach. And youth is fleeting, No matter how hard we try, time keeps marching on. Looming over the entire book is the specter of death, the great equalizer. Death is what makes everything feel like Hevel, like smoke or vanity or meaninglessness. It happens to the good and the bad, the rich and the poor, the righteous and the unrighteous. It does not discriminate or show favoritism. And trying to understand why things work out the way they do is a frustrating exercise. Kohelet says it's like chasing after the wind. But now that Kohelet has had his say, the narrator finally jumps in to close out the book. Starting in verse 9, he says, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight and uprightly, he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. All right, let's start with that last sentence. The words of the wise are like goads. You know, goads, right? If, if, you're, if you're like me and you didn't grow up tending animals, um, a goat is a stick with a sharpened end that's used to poke an animal to get it moving. Okay, here's a, a picture of some ancient uh, farm implements. You see like some rakes and shovels and sickles and stuff. And that long stick across the bottom is a goad. It's got a sharpened end, and it's, it's long enough that you can be out of range when you poke an ox from behind if it you know, tries to kick back at you. And we use the word goad today, actually, to, to mean to provoke someone into action. We might say, don't goad me on. You know, don't provoke me. So the narrator is saying, the words of the wise... They kind of hurt. They provoke you, and it doesn't necessarily feel good. I think many of us would agree that the words of Ecclesiastes haven't always felt good. But the narrator wants us to know that, yeah, they hurt, but they're important. And one of the main lessons that Kohelet has taught us throughout the book is to hold things loosely. And this is a difficult truth, to acknowledge that we're not in control. Rather than try to grasp the smoke, the hevel, and watch it slip through your fingers, he says, live life with an open hand. The simple pleasures of life, those are a gift from God. Enjoy them. The relationships you have are a gift from God. These are ways that God is providing for us, so enjoy them while you have them. Kohelet has come back to this idea again and again throughout the book. It's kind of been a roller coaster with him, hasn't it, at times, where you're up and down, And as he reaches a low point after considering the vanity of life, he'll come back up for air and he'll say something like, there's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Or what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil that God has given him, for this is his lot. If that was all that Kohelet said, eat and drink and enjoy your work, I think we would have no problem nodding along. But there's more, and some of it is a little disturbing. Consider the following. First, from chapter 4 The dead who are already dead are more fortunate than the living who are still alive. Hmm. How about this from chapter chapter 9? Go eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved of what you do. That's interesting. Chapter 7, how about this? Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Usually in the Bible we're told to be righteous and to go and get wisdom. Those are good things. But look at what Kohelet says about wisdom. For in much wisdom there is much vexation, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. The more wise you get, the more confused you'll be. That doesn't sound like the rest of the Bible, does it? But here's the thing. At the end of the book, the narrator says we ought to listen to this guy because he writes words of truth. And the uncomfortable truth that Kohelet sees is that sometimes the world just doesn't make sense. Too often the world isn't fair. And the more you think about it, the more it should bother you. And it bothers Kohelet, so, so much so That he's even willing to point a finger at who he perceives to be the source of the problem. This is chapter 1, verse 13. I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. The Christian Standard Bible puts it more bluntly. Again there it says, God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. This miserable task is God's doing. This is the first time that God's mentioned in the entire book. That was at the beginning of chapter one. Kohelet identifies him as the source of all this frustration, and that frustration with God is frequently carried all the way through to the rest of the book. And so my question is, how can the narrator tell us to listen to Kohelet when he expresses frustration with God and even blames him How is this frustration and blame something that we're supposed to listen to or count as good? Does this kind of questioning even belong in the Bible? Here's what I think. I think that the author is trying to get us to realize that it's okay, it's good even, to wrestle with life's mystery. Every once in a while, I'll be talking to a Christian who's struggling with a doubt, and they're trying to figure out how to phrase it to me. And sometimes they won't even say what it is. They'll just hint at it because they're afraid of what will happen if they say it out loud. This is a paraphrase of a real conversation I had with a friend once. Hey Brent, I'm struggling with something. What is it? I'm having this doubt. What kind of doubt? Well, the big doubt. What big doubt? You know, the big one. Like, does God even... You know, does God even what? Does God even, you know, and now his voice gets quiet, does God even exist? Or sometimes someone will say something, you know, only half half joking, they'll be like, oh God, don't strike me with lightning for saying this. And then they'll confess that they're struggling with the problem of evil, you know, of how bad things can happen to good people, as if everyone else who ever voiced that concern was immediately crushed by a falling piano, Looney Tunes style. If, if you're dealing with doubt, and we all do at times, if you're frustrated with God, and we all are at times, the best thing you can do is say so. Do you know why? Because God already knows. If you didn't get zapped for thinking the doubt, you're not going to get zapped for saying it out loud. The wrestling with or struggling with God is—it's biblical. In Genesis chapter 32, Jacob literally wrestles with God and God gives him a new name, Israel, which means he strives with or he struggles with God. Job also wrestles with God. He he feels that he's been treated unfairly and he has the audacity to demand that God answer his complaint. The prophet prophet Habakkuk does the same thing. And David wrestles with God over and over again in in the lament psalms with words like, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You might remember that Jesus himself cried out those words on the cross. And I'm not saying that Jesus doubted God, but that even Jesus cried out in his anguish. Even Jesus wrestled with God, with God's plan when he uh, prayed in the garden before his arrest. And I'm convinced that Kohelet is doing something similar in Ecclesiastes. He's intellectually wrestling with God. He has good moments and bad moments, which is one reason it can be hard to follow at times in this book because he's so up and down. In his worst moments, he even blames God. And then in his best moments, he can sit back and say, I can't understand all of this, but I can see that it's good to sit back and hold things loosely. Kohelet is up and down that way in the book. He's wrestling. And maybe Kohelet is all of us, if we're willing to admit it. We wrestle with God when life is a mystery, when someone else gets unf- unfairly gets the promotion that you thought you deserved, or when a friend turns their back on you and suddenly won't talk to you anymore, or when someone we care about passes away. When the narrator of Ecclesiastes affirms Kohelet when he says you ought to pay attention to this guy, I think part of what he's saying is go ahead and wrestle with God over life's mysteries. It's okay. God can take it. It's healthy and it's good to question our faith. It's, it's part of how our faith grows. It's a sign that we're adopting our faith as our own and not just parroting the faith of the person who taught us. Now, I'm not saying we should be lazy about this. If we only ask questions and then say, well, those are hard questions, I guess I should walk away. Then we're not really wrestling. We need to seek answers too. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But I do believe that it's an exercise in faith to ask questions, and to trust that God is big enough and good enough to take our complaint and love us anyway. Voicing the complaint is an invitation to let him respond. And maybe it's not an answer that we always need, but the arms of our loving Father wrapped around us as he tells us, I know you don't understand, and I know you're hurting, but I want you to know that I love you. So the narrator, he's told us that we ought to listen to Kohelet. Kohelet is wise and has some important things to say. But the narrator has even more to say. He doesn't just affirm Kohelet. He also gives us a warning as well as one final instruction. So here's the warning. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of flesh. If you've ever seen the overflowing bookshelves in my living room, then you'll know I get excited by the idea that of making many books, there is no end. I may mean, not like movies, but I do love to read. So, what's going, on, what's going on here? Let's start with that last idea that much study is weariness of flesh. The narrator is not telling us not to learn, he's just given us 11 and a half chapters to read and study. So, he wants us to study. So, what is he saying? I think he's saying something like, it's good to listen to Kohelet. He has a lot of good things to say, a lot of good questions to ponder, and you should ponder them, but not forever. At some point, you need to move on. If all you do is study these questions, eventually it's just going to wear you out. In computer programming, uh, there's something called an infinite loop that you want to avoid. You don't want to accidentally write code that results in an infinite loop. An infinite loop is where your code calls back onto itself. So you're kinda, the code executes line by line, and in an infinite loop, it jumps back to where it just was. So it just keeps going in a circle like that over and over again. If you've ever been on your computer, and maybe you like, get an error message that pops up, and you press OK, and the same error message pops up, you press OK again the same error message pops up over and over and over again until you eventually have to restart your computer and lose 20 minutes worth of work because you haven't saved it okay if you've done that then you may have encountered an infinite loop the computer's stuck and you have to restart it the narrator is telling us that endless study and these difficult intellectual matters these mysteries that puzzle us they can get us stuck in an infinite loop he's saying don't do that He's saying, ask the hard questions, but eventually you have to move on. He wants you to reconstruct, to, to seek answers, and not just ask the questions. And even to be okay if the if the answers elude you like smoke. So what do we move on to? That's the final instruction that closes out the book. Verse 13. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. You've heard enough of Kohelet, the narrator says. Embrace life's mystery, wrestle with life's mystery, and then what? Fear God despite the mystery. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is really important. Kohelet has been describing the world as he sees it and voicing his frustrations about it. But now the narrator moves us beyond description to instruction. For the English majors out there, we've moved from the indicative to the imperative. We'll talk about what it means to fear God in just a minute, but I want to start by looking at the phrase, for this is the whole duty of man. The Hebrew behind that phrase is used four times in the book. And the first three are by Kohelet, and the last one here by the narrator. Kohelet uses it in chapters 3 and 5, where he says that what is for everyone, or what the whole duty of everyone is, is just to eat and drink. Take pleasure in your work and enjoy your possessions. And then in chapter 7, he says that death is what God has given for everyone. Death is the whole duty of mankind. For Kohelet, the whole duty of mankind is to enjoy your life, such as it is, and to die. But the narrator, he now jumps in at the end and he says, actually, there's something more. The whole duty of man is not just to enjoy your life and die. The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. Old Testament scholar Peter Enns paraphrases the narrator here, Kohelet is wise, to be sure. As he says, pleasure and death are real and are the portion of everyone. But there is a deeper, more fundamental obligation on this earth, which is to fear God and keep his commandments. This is truly everyone's portion. These last words of the narrator about fearing God should bring to mind the book of Proverbs. Ecclesiastes is part of what we call Israel's wisdom literature, which also includes at at least Job and Proverbs. And these three books are meant to interact with each other. You see these books interact uh, when the narrator says that the whole duty of man is to fear God. That brings to mind the main point that's repeated in Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. So I think the narrator's point is that, yes, we should wrestle with the mysteries of life, We should voice our frustrations and even complain to God if we need to. But at the end of the day, if you want to know the wise way to live, go back to Proverbs. But one of the important functions of Ecclesiastes is to rule out a simplistic reading of Proverbs. If you read Proverbs in a simplistic way, you you might think that the righteous will always succeed and the wicked will always fail. But Ecclesiastes says, hey, it's not that simple that's not always how life works out. And the narrator says, yes, that's true. It's not always that simple. And Peter ends words again. There's no answer given to Kohelet as we see given to Job from God's mouth, stunning the complainer to silence. Rather, the complaints are affirmed as wise. But the reader is challenged to move beyond this state, even against all reason, to want a fear of God in obedience to his commands. Rather than, how dare you question me, as we see in Job, here we read, yes, it is tough, but follow God anyway. We've been using this phrase, fear God, but we haven't talked about what it means yet. Is the narrator telling us that we need to be afraid of God? If you've been around Christ's community for a while, you may have heard us talk about two different Hebrew words that convey this idea of fear. The first word is yare, which is the word we've been seeing here in Ecclesiastes, it's also in Proverbs 1.7 when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The other word, pachad, which is really fun to say. You can try it if you want, but don't spit on the person in front of you. Pachad <clears throat> shows up in Proverbs one thirty three. It says, whoever listens to me will dwell secure and be at ease without dread of disaster. So the second word, pachad, it's, it's more like dread or terror. What we usually think of as being afraid. It's always bad. The first word, yare, is more like awe. It's like standing on the rim of the Grand Canyon and admiring its beauty. The part of what makes it beautiful and awe inspiring is also what makes it scary. You're standing on the rim. As usual, no one illustrates the idea of the fear of the Lord better than C.S. Lewis. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the children who are the main characters of the book learn about Aslan, who's the, the great lion and the true king of Narnia from Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. When, uh, of Aslan, Lucy says, is, is he a man? Aslan a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel quite nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else plain silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Like Aslan, God is not safe, but he's good. Michael Reeves puts it this way in his book, Rejoice and Tremble. For the nature of the living God means that the fear which pleases him is not a groveling, shrinking fear. He is no tyrant. It is an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is. And it therefore leans on him in staggered praise and faith. So the whole duty of mankind is to fear God and keep his commandments. And the narrator tells us why in the final verse of the book. For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Some translations use the word hidden rather than secret. And hiding calls to mind Genesis 3. Remember what Adam and Eve did when they disobeyed God and ate from the forbidden tree. They hid, and we do that too when we sin, right? We hide from each other. And from God. And the narrator reminds us of an eternal perspective that, that God will bring every deed into judgment. Kohelet says that all is vanity, meaningless, smoke, heaven, under the sun. But life isn't just under the sun, the here and the now. When we read Ecclesiastes, we read it in dialogue with the rest of God's revelation, we have to keep reading. Like the rest of the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes points forward. It points forward to one who would come from over the sun to live under the sun. To Jesus, who would pass through the smoke, the hevel, the vanity and meaninglessness of life to show us the wise way to live and to pave the way to eternal life for us. And to do so not by accumulating wealth and pursuing every sensual desire like Kohelet, who also, you'll remember, was a king, but by renouncing all of that. As Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus didn't use his position or his status as king of the universe to his own advantage, but he gave it up. He emptied himself, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And Jesus invites us to follow him. Kohelet told us again and again where we won't find life and purpose and meaning. Kohelet told us that pursuing wealth and worldly pleasure in all its forms ultimately leaves us wanting. And Jesus agrees. Instead, he says, take up your cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Today, we're going to close by celebrating communion. Communion is a reminder that true life is found only through death through the broken body and poured out blood of Christ. And the way we do communion here at Christ Community is that we'll have you come forward in groups of six to eight, and you'll take a piece of bread and you'll dip it in the cup and then hang on to it and the whole group will eat together. And we have six stations around the room, uh, four up front as well as two in back. The station to my far left over here is gluten-free. And those stations in back are self-service. So you can go ahead and grab the bread and dip it yourself and just eat it and head back to your seat. Communion at Christ Community is open to anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus. And if that is not you, we want to say that we are so glad that you're here and we invite you to remain in your seat during this time. We want want to let you know that you're honoring us by not participating. Let me pray for us and then you can come forward to one of our stations. God, thank you that you haven't left us only with questions. Thank you for reminding us through the book of Ecclesiastes that it's okay to ask big questions. It's okay to wrestle with life's mysteries. And God, I pray for those who are wrestling this morning, who are dealing with doubt or loss, who are frustrated because they feel like you are distant right now or who have distanced themselves because of sin or stubbornness. Remind us today that you love us. Remind us of your promise never to leave us. Remind us that as far as the east is from the west, is how far you have removed our transgressions, our sin from us. We thank you, God.